1: So the Hello
0: and welcome to Root of the Rock. My name is Stephen Heiner and you are listening to the Restoration Radio Network. I'm very pleased to have as our guest for the first episode of this show for this season, His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. Your Excellency, always a pleasure to have you with us.
1: Thank you very much, Stephen. A pleasure to be here.
0: I know that, as always, you'll want to start us with a prayer, so before I even start the commercials or our announcements, I'll let you do that.
1: Thank you. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus.
0: Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen.
1: Jesus, King and center of all hearts, by the coming of thy kingdom, grant us peace. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Uh,
0: Your Excellency, today's episode one, and we're starting, the, the bookends for the show are 800 to 1274. But uh, we have to start a little bit before that to set up for talking about what, what, the influent, what, what influenced 800 that, that year and, and how we got there. And I, I think in preparation for the show, I was drawn to a quote of St. Pius X. When he was, uh, I don't remember if he was giving a lecture to young seminarians or he if he was just in conversation with young seminarians. But he, you know, as as a as a teacher might want to do, ask questions. And uh, he had asked, you know, what was the fifth? What are the five marks of the church? Or he had asked what the four marks were, and he asked what the fifth was. And a, an astute seminarian, probably a Father Chikada type, uh, <laughs> said, uh, "Roman," correctly in correctly marked the fifth, the fifth mark of the church is Roman. And we think, you know, I've heard you give a sermon before about our, our lady and how our Lord could pick our lady. And sometimes I think we get tunnel vision and, and we realize, okay, our Lord could pick his own mother. We also forget mm-hmm. that our Lord could pick the historical period he came into. And it, it wasn't, just, it wasn't just, oh, this is the, the, the latest empire of the day, because we know empires come and empires go, but there was a, a unique, possibility here that previous empires had had not given us and and the roman influence still stays it's enduring with us in the church to this day and i think thinking about that in terms of culture and and what that civilization brings and brought to us is really important and i think we'll probably we should probably start there
1: yes and if we're speaking about the empire and 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 roman as as one of the one of the great qualities or marks of the church, well then we have, we should probably stop in our tracks right away, Stephen, and say, all right, we are making we are recording this program during the during a very momentous week in history. Uh, today is Friday, the last day of January, but this past um, Tuesday. Uh, the feast day of St. Um, Agnes the second time and Saint in St. Peter Nolasco, We also observed, and one of the young fathers here, Father Lectoranda, a Finnish priest, gave a very fine sermon to mark the um, centenary of the death of 12th centuries, the death of the great Roman emperor Charlemagne. He died in the year 841, and his death... Uh, marks uh, the end of a a great flourishing of the the Christian, the Catholic, and the Roman Empire uh, all around the time of his coronation and his his great and glorious reign that truly united all of Europe under under a Catholic monarch and a, a Catholic pope. Um, and then after that, things slide a little bit towards uh, what one might properly call the Dark Ages in some respects, but not in all respects. And then finally, we have the great flourishing of uh, Christendom, Catholic culture, in the high Middle Ages until about the 14th century, the beginning of the 14th century. So in, in the series, we want to talk about the root of the rot. And um, so, indeed, we have to talk about Rome and the, and the Empire, and we have to talk about culture. Those are... Those are, are probably two two very important things. So, as as the Holy Father Saint Pius X correctly said, obviously, um, the, the our Lord chose Rome and the Roman Empire, even as our Lord chose the Jewish nation early on as the vehicle of his um, of the vehicle of his uh, his divine plan. Uh, uh, and is entering into this world to save it and to restore that divine order that was messed up and lost, largely by um, original sin. And it was from the from the Jews, from amongst the Jews, his own chosen people, that he chose the first kings. And already then you have a theme that I see in this, uh, in this series, I see in a Catholic perspective on history. and How do we get to where, where we are today? And, and the theme is that God... Is God is all holy and all just, God and all wise and all loving. He makes use of of man who is none of the above, <laughs> and it's it's a necessary alliance um, that that our Lord chooses. You will see this with um, Rome and the, and the Roman emperors. You see the the new Roman emperor of the Holy Roman Emperor, beginning with uh, with Charlemagne. There's going to be always that human fallible. Uh, element, and then there's going to be the divine element as these two societies um, recognize each other, sometimes cooperate during the great periods of Catholic history, Christendom, and then sometimes square off against each other. Sometimes it's just little things, and then sometimes there's really big conflicts uh, throughout, uh, throughout the course of, uh, of, uh, of the history of, of Christendom, really.
0: If we think about what you just said about Getting to the Dark Ages, can we? Is the implication that this was the light, the Light Ages? That this was a, a very good time from from when Christianity was legalized at the time of Constantine to Charlemagne?
1: The the reign of Charlemagne, I think, represents an unusually bright and sunny day in the history of Christendom. It was sort of it was sort of it was high summer. There were all these fruits. It was high summer. Uh, there were a little uh, intonations already of, of conflicts, as I say, that would come, that would come later, and that would, would be very, very grievous for the history of the church. But it was, it was a really glorious time. Uh, but then, of course, going going back though to where we really need to start <coughs> would be with Constantine and the Edict of Milan, and 313, and the end of the persecution, and the the the, the role of the emperor first as a as a pagan, then as a as a catechumen and finally as as a heretic, in effect an Arian, Constantine, his relationship with the church. Uh he gives the church her liberty. And it's interesting, Stephen, this is just plain old religious liberty. <laughs> the kind of thing that the that the modern world is so enamored of, and which the Church has always demanded as her right and her unique right alone, the right to, to do what is right, as we, as we said in some of the previous programs on Restoration Radio, um, she, the Church receives her liberty, and at the beginning, that is all. But the, the emperor uh, keeps his title, and I think this is terribly significant, he keeps his title at the start as, as Pontifex Maximus. Later on, that title would pass, and justly so, to the Pope, the Holy Father, the, the Bishop of Rome. Uh, he is a true Pontifex Maximus, and the Popes will use that title. But at the beginning is the Emperor, and the Emperor from the very start, um, by, in his relationship to the Church, he vindicated, you might say, that title. That is to say that he was the one who called the Council of Nicaea, and he was the one who organized everything and then paid for the trips and kept order. For example, he's the one who, threw St. Nicholas, our, the, orig, the originator, perhaps, of our modern-day Santa Claus, in a sense, he threw him in, into jail for having popped Arius in the nose. But who wouldn't have, after all? But he was thrown <laughs> into prison, and because of that, he was sort of like the referee. He wasn't even a Christian, not baptized, but he was the referee, and he, he was the Pontifex Maximus. He organized things. He kept order. You see a little bit of that same sense in um, centuries later, with a true Catholic, with a with Charlemagne, a little bit of that same sense he 's the one who uh, made rules against simony and uh, uh, organized great centers of learning, he had a great interest in the liturgy and he introduced the Roman liturgy into into his empire into France and um, uh, rules about chant and music as well as uh, bishops and and justice and all of the rest so you see you see that um, there's sort of a overlapping, you might say. Uh, the, the idea of the two perfect societies, which is a very important Catholic concept, you know, the state is a perfect society that can achieve its own ends without any necessary reference outside of itself. In the Church, the same thing. But then very often these two circles intersect. And, and sometimes when they intersect, there's a problem or there's, there's annoyance or, um, or there are difficulties. But uh, at, at a, a great Principle is this that in not with the Roman emperors, uh, not with of, of the fourth century, say, but by the time that we have a true Catholic emperor crowned by a pope, Charlemagne, around, I say, more or less around 800 AD, then you have, you have emperors who recognize the theory, who submit to the doctrine and to the teaching that the pope is the pope. He is the one who has the power to crown, and he is the one who has the power to depose. He has the power of the keys, and he wears the triple crown. Um, There's that that principle there that is is accepted. But then always in practice, there's always some some pull, and there's always some tension uh, between the two.
0: Indeed, and you know, your Excellency has... As we look back, you know, when we're younger and we're learning history, we hear about the Christian persecutions and, you know, you think about this really terrible time in the church, but, but in a certain sense, um, if, if the price to pay is you get an almost unbroken line of Pope saints, maybe, maybe that's not so bad, right? And,
1: oh, sure, absolutely. and you, also, Not only Pope saints, but everybody that was a Catholic uh, was prepared to be a martyr, by 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 the very definition of things, so they were they truly were as Saint Paul salutes them the saints. They they were all running around little potential saints, and uh, they they lived lives of great personal sanctity.
0: And whenever
1: thing, then whenever things got a little bit loose, then God would would, in effect, loose the pagans on the Christians, loose the lions on the Christians. And that had a wonderful way of sort of um, tightening things up. And if you were going to be serious about being a follower of Jesus Christ, of Christ the King, a Catholic, you, you would be. And if you weren't, you would become the, the traitor, the traitor, the one who hands himself over, or the grain of incense, or the sacred books to the pagans under Diocletian. There's something to be yes. said for that. Yes, you know, tr- truly. For the Church has always maintained that. For sometimes the periods of peace are, are the periods of of, of of decadence. Not always, but sometimes. And then periods of persecution can be can be times of such great flourishing.
0: Right, martyrdom was really on offer back then. You could say it, it was and on
1: offer. And 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 the Tertullian truly said the blood of the martyrs was indeed the seed of the Church. And and the and the Church. Uh, thrived with that. Uh, The trouble always is—well, this is one of those little paradoxes or contradictions you see in in history—the trouble always is when Catholicism became the acceptable and the respectable thing that everybody then flocked to the churches and flocked to be baptized— the good, the mediocre, and the bad. That's good, because that's how the Church cemented Christendom, this Catholic culture that perdured really, in a sense, you might say, from around 300, the Edict of Milan, to the French Revolution, uh, uh, right uh, right at the the end of the um, 18th century. Um, But on the other hand, the bad part of that is because Truly, the kingdom of heaven on earth is, as our Lord says in one of the parables, it's a great net. The angels catch all fishes of all kinds and bring it onto to the shore. So you've got the riding rot- the fishes, then you've got the sharks, then you've got the, 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 the wonderful Chilean sea bass and everything in between. It's, it's all there. And then, then that's going to mean for a certain diminution of fervor in the introduction of every possible vice and every possible error and And the church will have to fight against these things, but I think if you want to look at now how did all of this get how did this happen? How did we end up uh, we Catholics who are left in this absolute tiny minority uh, we 're we're going all the way back one of the reasons we 're in the absolute tiny minority is that any shreds or remnants of the of christendom i mean a Catholic, a living Catholic culture. That affects the way people think, the way they entertain themselves, the way they express their thoughts, their music, their their um, architecture, uh, their philosophy, their entertainment, everything. The way they, uh, and, and the whole economic system, uh, all of all of that is is gone. But at one time, it was that was part of Christendom. It was part of Catholic culture and the great achievement of the Church um was to uh, establish this, this catholic culture uh as opposed to a pagan culture today we have a naturalistic kind of an anti culture uh but at at the beginning the church in both the east and in the west it, it sta- uh, re- replaced uh, the the roman imperium or the roman empire with the with the christian the catholic empire so Everyone lived and breathed Catholic. You thought in those terms. So even though it was most unfortunate that you had all these heresies about our Lord, his nature and his person, say, in the East, and then, of course, the East eventually would be punished most severely by God, uh, Dom Gueranger says, by by the sending in of of the Mohammedans for all their blasphemies against our Lord and the incarnational truths. Nevertheless, how interesting you had people at the marketplace you know, maybe they're buying some fish or a basket or something, and they're discussing uh, hypostasis and what that means and the nature of a person or the nature of the word nature and Greek philosophical terms, and as they may or may not be used for, for theology and, and was, was, was Jesus Christ a creature or not. Everyone lived and breathed theology. They, they lived and breathed this kind of Catholic atmosphere. How interesting is that? What what a different world from ours, where you know, people today are worried about some really, really decadent Canadian, and he got himself arrested, I guess, something like that. You know, that's a big story. Um, that's because uh, we're in a and the totally naturalistic and pagan society and the and the classic enemies of the kingship of Christ the Jewish nation and Freemasonry are the ones who pull the strings now. So he who he who controls, he who creates, controls and then maybe maintains the culture, uh, sets the tone for the age. That's uh, I think that's a truth of history and that's an explanation as to how we got to where we are today. So you see that with um, the pagan world, you know, it's, it's, not, it's important for people to understand if we're talking about the pagan persecutions. The Christians were not, were not persecuted because they worshipped a different god, Jesus Christ. Uh, the, there were many pagan emperors who had been more than happy to move the idols on the shelf over one notch and make room for a statue of our Lord. In fact, uh, Marcus Aurelius, in effect, and a couple of others tried to do something something along along those lines. Um, the the, the Pa- the the pagans couldn't stand the Christians because they were they were anarchists. They made the um, the libertarians of today or the paleo conservatives of today seem really sort of mild tabby cats in comparison. They were they were just viewed as anarchists. They're outside of the whole the whole culture and the, all the cultural presuppositions about war and the sold soldiering and the empire and the worship of the emperor and the myths of the gods and the whole Roman family structure. All, what the father had power over life and death, things like that, um, and the and, and all the built-in immorality. Uh, the Christians said no. To, they stood outside of all of that, and eventually God destroyed that old Roman Empire. It was a vehicle. Because was it empire? was an empire, it was going to work. Was it was with roads and communication. It was a vehicle for spreading the faith. But then, but then God always—you see throughout history—I think that you see God destroying these things out of a just punishment. Uh, the, the, the 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 nation of Israel uh, that was meant to be a vehicle and it failed. The pagans were a vehicle in some sense, the pagan Roman Empire, but their time was over. And then comes the Christian Roman Empire, and the glory of. Charlemagne, the glory of Christendom that starts, as I say, with Constantine. In a sense, is is a creation of this Christian culture, and uh, everybody thinks and breathes Christian. You 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 see it in the, um, you know, the the way they look at daily life, fasting, Lent, prayer, praying many times a day, Mass, uh, theological topics. What was important? What wasn't important? And then that that sort of comes to an end, I think, with the French Revolution we'll be talking about later on in this series, God willing. And then then comes our our anti-culture today. And we are, as the Christians were, we are viewed as, a, we have to be, we should be, if we're, if we're worth our salt, we are viewed as the Christians were in uh, the, uh, at, during the uh, three centuries of the persecutions. We're just out of the loop. We're just out there someplace, you know. We're clinging to these little pieces, uh, you know, the Titanic has sunk, and we're clinging to these little pieces of flotsam and jetsam and maintaining what's left of, Faith and and Christian life amongst ourselves in our little little communities, things like that. But as I say, if you want to understand the root of the rot, you have to look at this question of, of of these great ideas of necessary but but compromising alliances, and of conflicts due to sin, and of culture. Most of all, it's culture. So the church creates uh, the church creates uh, Christendom, this wonderful Catholic culture in which everybody is on the same page, they better be, because if they're not on the same page, you have already, uh, by the uh, the Emperor Theodosius, who died in 395, you have him officially, by law, banning the, the heresies, uh, Arianism, banning Judaism, uh, which was on its way, that by then become, becomes, sort of like a neo-pagan cult, which it is still today, paganism itself, and, um, Justinian later on in the fifth in the sixth century will do the same thing, but in in a, in a lot more in a, in a lot more uh, a more detail. So you have that. The, go ahead, yes, uh,
0: I was going to say I wanted to touch on a couple things you brought up there. I, I think one is the, is a really interesting idea of our Lord destroying something that that no longer serves a purpose. It reminds me of the verse where he speaks about being lukewarm. Right? If something's hot, if something's cold, at least it's purposeful. Mm-hmm. But uh, lukewarm. Yeah. So that brings me back to the fig tree where, our, you know, it, the, the, the tree is growing, but it's not doing anything, you know, and our Lord just won't, he won't, ha- he won't stand for this. Um, and so by the same notion, you, we saw the end of the Jewish religion with the destruction of the temple. And as you say <laughs> here, when the Roman Empire had served its purpose, our Lord was happy to let it go.
1: Yes, and and the it. way of letting it go, which of course that was traumatic, right, the fall of Rome, the coming of the barbarians, uh, a, a, a true revolution, but a necessary revolu- death and a revolution so that Christendom, a real, no, the real Christendom now, could be born out of its ashes. The conversion uh, by, the, by the Church, the conversion of all these invading pagan nations, and that a new Roman Empire, Roman and Catholic, could be forged, which would be Christendom.
0: Yeah. And the, the second thing that you had brought up, which I, I also find interesting, because we're always seeing parallels and callbacks to the ancient times for those who, who read history. I think today, one of the issues that was such a big deal last year was, was who, who can or can't get married, right? And one of the things as, as Catholics, who have had 20 centuries of, of the church ahead of them, we didn't really, you and I didn't really have to sit and struggle to, to figure out how many natures does our Lord have, how many persons does yeah. he have, is Mary the mother of Christ or is Mary the mother of God, what does that mean? Right. Um, so we, we, we have all that. So it's sort of been delivered to us on a platter, right, uh, in, right. In, in, a catech- in catechism form. But if we look back at the Roman times, as you talk about the transition and Constantine being someone who is an organizer and who would bring this, if we look at the troubles behind marriage, uh, just to pick one issue today, yeah. they were yeah. issues back then. I, I think we have this hazy idea as Christians that, oh, well, yeah, at some point, everyone figured out it was supposed to be one man and one woman for life uh, because our Lord said so. And actually, this took hundreds of years to change.
1: Yes, and uh, it was the, it was the church that did that. Obviously, it was the church that that lifted up the dignity of womanhood, which had been degraded in in, in, in the Pharisaical Jewish uh, society. And custom, and and then, then Moses, our Lord says, permitted you to have divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning, it was not so. Then our Lord abolishes all of those concessions to human weakness and this whole beautiful ideal that Saint Paul. Develops in its epistle to the Ephesians that read it, that's read right at the nuptial mass that's that's all held up and then then you go to Rome and then you have this great one of the greatest popes of the persecutions was Pope Saint Callistus who's feast is in um, October he was the one who vindicated the right of the Church in the matter of matrimony and how did he vindicate it that freemen uh, uh, slaves Uh, were allowed to intermarry amongst each other. Because in Christ, as the old hymn goes, there's neither east nor west. There's not slave or free, St. Paul says. So the Church vindicated her rights as opposed to the rights of the, of the Pontifex Maximus, the pagan emperor, to establish the rules for licit and for valid marriage. That was a very, very important development. It was also the right of the church under him to own property and to open up churches. That's a, that, 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 that's another concern. But it's, it's the popes and vindicating their rights and the church her rights. But then Stephen really can't talk about marriage today, especially you know, on January 31st, 2014, without um, at least sort of nodding in the direction of of Rome today, and to say that uh, one of the great fruits of Christendom, of the Catholic faith and Catholic culture, is the indissolubility of marriage. That's almost dead today. And Bergoglio and his uh, cardinals are are sort of finishing off the remains, whatever is left of the concept of the indissolubility of matrimony and marriage until death, the vows and the oaths that in Christendom were so very important by the sacraments, the whole idea of the knighthood and fealty, all those wonderful concepts that the Church nourished, which are part of the bedrock of our Christian civilization, that's gone today. So they're busy, busy propagandizing today against this uh this concept of marriage as, as a sacred union of man and a woman procreation of children until the death of one of the partners. That's uh that's pretty much gone today. One of the successors of Charlemagne, who in some places and at certain times is even venerated as a saint or at least as a as as, as a blessed, one of his successors um uh took somebody else's wife, Lothair, and uh, a pope during this, the National, you might say, Dark Ages, was a great saint, Pope uh, Nicholas the Great, who um, was a saint, and he dared to rebuke the king, as Nathan once rebuked David, as, as the popes uh, have always rebuked kings, Henry VIII, and, and sometimes at tremendous political price and and personal cost too because of the principle the Catholic principle of the thing but this whole idea you talk about culture and society what could be more basic than than marriage by, by the natural law itself what it is that's all gone today and you have these really really wicked people in Rome who are dressed up as though they were Catholics who are busy finishing it off and everybody else is just sort of you know, quietly nodding over their tea, or just going along with the program, are they maybe discussing the, 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 the travails of the latest entertainer uh, on, on the news and the talk, talk about those things. That's all gone. And with that, with that is flushed away some other little, uh, not little, but major part, but what's the little left of that major part of what makes Catholic society to be Catholic based on the marriage, the home, children, the, uh, the, the family. It's all gone now.
0: Well, and we also have those beautiful customs which uh, which came with marriage. So you, you were talking about the practical side of just having to beat back the idea that you could get rid of a woman when you weren't interested in her anymore. You could take another wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could live with her beforehand. But then you get all of these new customs where where we would have a, a priest blessing that couple. So even though the ordinary minister of, of marriage is, is the couple – Right themselves, but mm-hmm. uh, that, yes. that the church is the church is brought in to yes, to sacra- sacramentalize a natural, yes. you could say a natural sacrament. Right? People were when, it, when it's,
1: before. Right when it becomes between Christians, then it's not only a, a natural union or contract. Then it, then it's our our Lord raised it to the level of, of, of a sacrament, and so the church is necessarily interested in this. And then she, um, well, Saint Paul uses that phrase. Uh, cleansing her, his spouse, by by water in the uh, in the in, in the laver of life, uh, and that reminds me of that great act of consecration of the world to Christ the King by uh, Pope Pius the uh, the eleventh, um, a, a laver of redemption and of life. He calls he calls it. Well, this this bath in which in which uh, a renewed uh, marriage. Contract, which is now a sacrament in Christ, is plunged and just permeated finally with is the supernatural, is grace. And so in the, in the so in the in the, in Christendom, you have not just marriage itself, but marriage at a mass, a nuptial mass, the nuptial blessing bestowed upon upon the bride. And in the old days, indeed, there was a uh, there was the blessing of the um, of the bridal chamber itself the idea of, of the sanctity of marriage relations in God's plan, and obviously their proper use for the, uh, the propagation of the human race. Oh, Stephen, it was a great partnership. It was a beautiful thing, Christendom. And we, you can't start to think and talk about these things without almost sort of a sense of nostalgia, I suppose. Think, what must it have been like? How wonderful. And then we ourselves knew the very tale end of that. Uh, of that idea of large Catholic families and, and divorce unthinkable amongst Catholics. And now you know, the bad guys in Rome are planning out all their, uh, all, planning out all their plans, so that they can put the final nail in the coffin of uh, of, of marriage itself. To, it's it's a very sad thing, but that explains why things are so very very bad today. That even the concept of the natural law is gone. Uh, But so you you look back and say, well, these were the great strengths. This is how Christendom came about. Uh, The sanctity of marriage, Christian society, the rights of the Church in in these matters, and and then the rights of the Church being respected um, by by the state. Then maybe this might be a good time to talk about some of those very, very early heresies, well before Martin Luther, which prepared the way. Especially, um, oh, a theme that's been talked about before, I know, on Restoration Radio about uh, the Albigensian heresy, the Rosary, St. Dominic, and that whole crusade. And how the Albigensians were, in reality, the way Christians were looked upon by the pagans. That is to say, the Albigensians were outside of society. They were totally anti-life. They were really a demonic force of... uh, of uh, the destruction of the moral law, and therefore of society, and of any bit of order in society, including marriage, procreation of children, life itself. They were were truly the original anti-life people. Uh, How did the Church deal with heresy? Well, we've seen already during the the, the, the era of Christendom how um, particularly well, starting with Theodosius in the fourth century, but particularly with Justinian in the sixth century, and then and then its high point maybe would be would be that starting with Charlemagne, and then and then and then during the during time of Christendom going up to the glories of the twelfth century. How the church uh, the church was against heresy, of course, but how the state and the proper relationship to the church as 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 in this sense. Um, the maintainer of order, how the state, for its own interests and for its own purposes as a perfect society uh, uh acted very decisively to destroy, to abolish to crush out heresy always always um, some of those same terms that were used for uh, laws that were used for the destruction of um of heresy were later on say in Elizabethan England. Uh, and for centuries, in the English Empire, turned against against Catholics. You know how, I maybe mean, the fourth, fifth century, heretical teachers were forbidden to teach in public. Heretics couldn't inherit. Heretics couldn't um, uh, buy or sell or do or do business. Um, they they couldn't have a, a building or a formal meeting place. Those were all the means of that. The, not the church, the state and its proper understanding of the maintenance of society and of order, which is built on God's plan, the, the, the Catholic Church. Um, the state did, did its very best to maintain order, and that's the role of the state. That, that would be the proper—that would be, the I think, probably a pretty good example of the proper relationship of the role of church and state than— uh, then the question that would be maybe the you might say the improper relationship of church and state, that is to say, the state intervening and telling the church how to run its own spiritual affairs or the state then, in some sense or another coveting and then a, plotting to take over in effect taking over say the 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 office of a bishop, so the whole crisis about in the dark ages the crisis about lay investiture. Uh, because the bishop was a man of, of lands, wealth, and power, necessarily, because very often he was a temporal as well as a spiritual lord, he needed these things. Then, then, then the the seculars wanted that, and then that. The, while there wasn't any, uh, very often there was no actual false principle or heresy; it was just done in practice. But then, during the uh, during the uh, the time of lay investiture, you you actually, in the whole crisis with. Um, Frederick Barbarossa, Frederick the Great, um, Frederick I, not the First—not the Great—I guess the Great would come later. Uh, you had uh, you had a, you had a really uh, the coming of a of a false a false doctrine, false principles that the that the popes, in their turn, opposed with all of their might and all of their main, particularly Gregory the Eighth, Hildebrand, and how. How wonderful he was. He, really, his election marks the end of the Dark Ages and the, and the, and the, coming, the coming again of the light of the great flourishing of Christendom uh, that will come finally in the 12th century.
0: For those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to Root of the Rot, Episode 1, with His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. I'm Stephen Heiner, and we've just been discussing the the start of Christianity within the construct of the Roman Empire and what characteristics the empire lent to Christianity and what characteristics of the empire Christianity fought against and ultimately purged. Uh, it was, in, it wasn't a perfect marriage, one could say. We, we, one could say that the, the church took on the best of what the Romans had to offer and abandoned, them. abandoned the worst. Your Excellency, as as you're discussing this idea of of how we treat heretics, you know, again, you you talk about uh, getting nostalgic, and I think about the fact that, you know, you you there was an era in which, and even I would say within living memory, uh, in the United States, there wasn't there was a time when certain things just could not be said out loud or in public, and oh, those, oh, yeah. those 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 times have fled. Uh there are things that things that uh, are just pretty much I I want to say you could say almost everything is permitted. I mean, I live I live currently in a country in which there are certain things that are not permitted
1: uh to be said at all.
0: Uh but uh you live in a country in which pretty much everything can be said.
1: Yes, that's the uh that's that the much vaunted ideal of liberty and again The irony or the paradox, Stephen, here we have um, uh, the Christian era starts with the church receiving or just plain old liberty under Constantine. And then that liberty, of course, can always lead to license in a hurry, which is why the emperors got their sword out, I would say, in a hurry and got themselves involved in the the affairs of the church because that was also the the affair of state. The country in which you are living now, of course, forbids uh, that there should be any, any discussion against the great dogmas of the day. That is to say, all the rights of certain groups in particular and certain historical theories have to be defended unto uh, unto the very death. In our country, in the United States, it's well, it's not quite to that point yet, but probably we are reaching there because... False liberty leads to license, and, and this, the whole idea of false liberty, the false liberty of man against God and his revelation, leads you just down one very narrow and very dark alley, which is a dead end, and that's tyranny. And uh, the, the modern world uh, is reaping the fruits of this, of this revolution that started with the, the French Revolution, whereby slowly God and the divine plan, the church, uh, uh, and, and Christendom, all of those things are just banished. And uh, therefore, we end up in a in a police state, in a, in a world of total servility, in which all of the values are turned upside down. And then the upside down version is, of course, enforced by law. But yeah, sure, of course, one can remember in the old days certain things were never said. They weren't allowed to be said in public. You see them in TV, you can see them in the papers. And certain things were just not accepted in, in Catholic society. It, it, here, you know, as I say today, they're talking. They're talking the press very openly about the plan being hammered out now and discussed and prepared for the uh, recognition of second and I suppose third marriages and the admission of Catholics who are in these states to to the sacraments of the conciliar Church. But yet, you know, one can remember a time. Uh, just before the revolution, where I remember, you know, growing up in an Irish Irish American Catholic family in Detroit in the 50s, where there's a, there was, a, there was a, a lady down the street, I don't know what the circumstances were, she was Catholic, but she was divorced. And there was sort of a cloud that hung over that house and, and everybody's mentality. It was just, uh, it was, wow, that's like really, really, how could that be? And just, uh, it wasn't right. And it was just, it was just, things were, things were not sunshiny bright and snickerdoodly, as they say. No, there was something wrong with all of that. But that, that era is, is, is long, long past. Uh, and now, of course, it's going to be quite the opposite. And all of these things, the opposite, in our anti-antichrist world, will eventually be enforced by law, as once the state, for its own purposes, as I say, would enforce uh, natural morality and common sense uh, rules by, by law. And that was the Christian. The state served as a great vehicle for Christendom.
0: Well, and and you're talking about the legacy. Of course, the one of the great achievements of the Roman Empire was their their law, the Roman law throughout all of their empire. And this, of course, was inherited by the Anglo-Saxon legislators, and it eventually passes into English-speaking countries and even into non-English-speaking countries. But that That great inheritor of the law, and also during this time period, you would have ecclesiastical courts and civil courts, and the spheres were separate and yet united by a common purpose that justice should be done within its proper spheres. So this this love of justice, but also the knowing of the proper place, and that cooperation again between church and state.
1: Yes, so you have so many saints who <clears throat> go to Pavia or some, or Paris, some great university, and get themselves a degree utrusque a degree, juris in both laws. Church law, canon law, as we call it, and then in civil law. And the one, one was based upon the other, and they both respected each other. And that, too, reflected the stability of society and this mutual respect in which these two perfect societies lived, the one towards the other.
0: You, we're going to keep talking about different Roman achievements, Your Excellency, because it, it all leads into this time period that we're talking about. But I suppose people might say, all right, you're talking about marriage and, and, and the law. You know, Can you talk about some fun stuff? Uh, I suppose <laughs> we, we, we can do that. And, and I suppose we can, we can start talking about uh, art, music, and architecture. And for anyone who's been to Rome, you can see that there are walls that are still up from you know, right. before yeah. before yeah. the time of our lord is, it's a, it's an amazing thing and when you realize you know people people back in those times could build walls that could last for millennia and people these days can't build walls that'll last for a week but that's right
1: it's for 20 or 30 years it's uh, a contractor was telling me the other day that it's uh, it's cheaper Rather than to re- remodel a house or do some repairs, it's cheaper it's simply to abandon the house and build a new house for people who are, who are well-to-do. What, what a world! Because you can talk about being built to endure, so you have, um, the, for example, like the Pantheon in Rome, the Church of Our Lady of the Martyrs, and the, 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 wall, the Hadrian's Wall, examples like that, really still, still to be seen throughout the world today. <clears throat> Built to, and then what's what are the principles behind that? Then this idea of stability and walls are built to keep people in and to keep other people out, and and the the good civilizing principle or concept behind that. But you said something intriguing a a minute ago, Stephen. I wanted to pick up on that. Is say so? What about something fun? (laughs) Well, I was thinking about uh, medieval culture medieval music uh, this morning, and. it was, in a sense, not that anyone sat, no one sat down as with many of these things. No one sat down deliberately and, and, and planned this stuff out, but, except, except the mind of Almighty God himself, who inspires these things in men. But, it, it, in a sense, the whole beauty of medieval, the medieval cultural achievements, art, uh, architecture, and music, was that it didn't correspond to the modern idea of fun, that is to say something that appealed primarily to the senses. It corresponded rather to something which appealed primarily to the intellect. So the nature, say, like of of the, the the church's pure music, Gregorian chant, not being bound by by rhythm, allowing the melody itself, which is essentially an intellectual, appeals to the intellect and not to the not to the feeling part of man, the the lower powers of his soul. Um, this, so this that's that's the high point of. Uh, of 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 christendom is is this is this wonderful spiritual ethereal intellectual music same thing with architecture based on based on principles, based on great principles, and always going upward, lifting man up and up in the magnificent cathedrals, talk about things that were built to last, which are still around today, not used for the purpose for which they were built, but uh, which are, are still to be seen today, and then to be, uh, you know, then obviously to be a- a- admired, it lifts us up. And then there's the lightness of what we call Gothic architecture. They say Gothic was originally came in as, as a term of, of reproach, but um, we could call it just simply Catholic architecture in a sense. So you have. Uh, and then, then all of these things, then representative of the higher, finer qualities of man, of his soul, deliberately designed and almost literally to lift one up, to lift up one's spirit. And while acknowledging that the sensual is there, not to give it too much power or too much play in life, all of these things too, because of that nature, then served as perfect vehicles for the introduction of, um, of uh, the great principles of, of, of the faith and their conveyance or communication to, uh, to each generation. So, uh, the cathedrals truly were a sermon in stone and then you have medieval stained glass, quite a bit of it really survives and you see it in England, you see it in France. Um, the, the sermons, the sermons in glass or the medieval church decorations in, in England, very colorful paintings of of the saints that that, that filled the walls that today are just whitewashed. Uh, all of these things as 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 a way of Communicating something about the nature of man himself, and as I to say, his finer part, and then then the the actual um, business part, you might say, of Christianity: the saints and the story of original sin and, and the creed, the adorable Trinity, uh, the. the the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. All of these truths were communicated in a way that was able to be understood by people who couldn't read. And that was done, that was done over the centuries.
0: Uh, boy, I'm trying to figure out where I want to go with this, because you've got, uh, you've, you've got me sitting in a couple different places. I, I think part of that challenge, let's, let's, let's pick up on the music part. I mm-hmm. think that's one, one of the frustrating things uh, uh, for parents, I think, um, who you know, have raised their children Catholic. And, you know, they perhaps they even go to St. Gertrude and, you know, then they find they find out they find out what their children are listening to. And it's certainly not Gregorian chant. Right.
1: Oh, no. and, and, and,
0: and 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 I make the point that, you know, Gregorian chant is really liturgical music. I, I'm, I'm not necessarily an advocate for, you know, busting out Gregorian chant when you're on a long road trip. It's not. I, 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 I think sometimes out of context, I don't think the advocate. We're not advocating, at least certainly I'm not advocating for rocking out to a lot of Gregorian chant, you know, on a four or five hour drive. But I, I, think, <laughs> but, but I think the challenge is that uh, we, as moderns, cannot escape what is all around us. This goes back to this idea of culture. So if you have church music, Gregorian chant, uh, other thoughtful music, which, which really permeated this era, then mm-hmm. it's somewhat easier to appreciate that good music. No, it's not going to be said that everyone during this time period lined up for good music, but they knew what good music was just subconsciously because they were around it. So the challenge today is people don't even know what good music is because all they've been surrounded by is the garbage they listen to and and it doesn't you can't escape it. It's not just something confined to America. I cannot tell you how many cafes I've sat inside, not tourist cafes. I, I had this sort of moment of revelation yesterday. I was tucked off somewhere in the 11th arrondissement, Small, which is the anti-tourist uh, district of mm. Paris. And I was listening, I think Coldplay came on and some other very modern, and I just thought to myself, I am in the middle of one of the oldest cities in the world, and I am listening to American music. And, and that's the thing is, this sure. is, this is the, the new Roman Empire, uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in the guise of the United States, is imposing, and and no one thinks that, oh, you're imposing your music on me. Well, no, it's not being, you're welcoming it in. You piped it in yourself. Absolutely. No they one's impo- it, they? imposing it on you.
1: Because so of the cultural of- imperium. He who controls the culture controls, to a large degree, men's minds and men's destinies. And the devil always knew that. And that's why, beginning with, France, the French Revolution, you had, well, in effect, the perfection of the German Protestant revolt of a few centuries before that. This, You have this revolution, and now a total revolution, now you have a total wall-to-wall culture, which is anti-Christian. You know, the, the point about a like, Christian culture, you don't have to... Obviously, that's the thing of the richness of Catholicism. There are all these different ways of doing things. So there's all these different forms of music which were born in a Catholic culture. And they're all so... So you know we, we we appreciate the great masses of Haydn or Mozart and even the 19th century Romantic masses, and uh, we appreciate classical music and, and its principles and its rules and its contributions, and we appreciate folk music and there's, there's a whole world there of of things to say and music to appreciate, and it's all good, and it's all natural, and in some sense it's uh, it's all evocative of God, the order of God. Or the natural order of things, a certain place, a time, culture—in that sense—the uh, uh, idea of one's homeland with folk music—that's all. That's all wonderful. But that—all of those things—are from Christendom. They're from the Catholic culture, or the remnants of Catholic culture uh, during the, the during, after maybe the 14th century, going going downhill. Um, and what you're talking about today in that cafe in the 11th arrondissement—that's that's the modern American naturalist antichrist culture that's absolutely everywhere.
0: And, and we don't just see it in, in music, Your Excellency. I think one of the things that we don't think about sometimes is how something harms us by omission. And, the, and, mm-hmm. and to take on by music, think in terms of architecture, right? We see uh, for any American who's been to the DMV lately, it's not exactly the most inspiring place to go to or your local post office and the challenge is uh what this does then is program people to think that's what buildings are supposed to look like just because it yeah. serves a mundane task like the dmv or the post office it means that it needs to look terrible i mean you can think of the the new york the new york city post office which is absolutely magnificent
1: and you yes, think that's right
0: there's there's nothing wrong there's nothing wrong with a good looking post office and in fact why can't everything we do in terms of architecture glorify God in that same sense? Because around us, what that does is it gives you, as you say in the culture, an opportunity to literally raise your mind as you're looking up yes. and you're observing things, and you, you get taken away there.
1: I, I remember riding a bus once in France when I was a student at on uh, during one of the vacations, and I think I was going to Salem to listen to the chant, and uh, thinking to myself, Wow, look at those barns. Those barns are beautiful. Each one of those old barn, medieval, or even, you know, post, uh, you know, these wonderful stone stone constructions, they would make a fine church, a fine chapel. Even the barn was elevating, sort of lifted you up to God. There was a beauty and a sense of order about its architecture, uh, and it was a fine thing. In America, with its strip malls and buildings uh, built for cheap so someone can make some, some extra money and have it cheap and disposable and all the rest of the commercial uh, underbelly of our of our modern godless society. Wow, how sad that is! So, but that and then that that culture, that anti culture, creates uh, creates the, the 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 man who's going to live in it. Then, then he is a man. Who, is a, who has no concept of beauty, he's accustomed to ugliness. He's, he's grasping all that. He's worse than a barbarian, because the barbarians probably had some sense of the natural law still, at least a little bit, in some customs or some ways in which their society was ordered. And and, and, the, and the, the church and her missionaries could build on that to create Christendom. Whereas today, modern man, what has he been re- reduced to? And he's reduced by his music. He's reduced by his architecture. He's reduced by his education and by his... Um, Entertainment, and then by his social mores, uh, the coming from uh, you know a, a multi divorce background, and the rest of it. Um, all of these things are the elements of constitutive elements of culture, I think, and that's what creates people, and that's what creates a hell on earth for for most people today. Isn't that sad?
0: Yes, I, I suppose. Speaking of, speaking of hell on earth, I think you all had the State of the Union uh, a couple couple days back. <laughs> Your Excellency. So, and so. I, was, yes. I was thinking about that as well within the context of this conversation because I want to I want to take us back to Constantine um and this idea of a ruler who really actually cared about about his people now uh, you know we we're, we're we're being a bit hard on France so you know let's let's sing some praises <laughs> of France and and maybe let's talk about for a, uh, an example uh, to someone towards the end of the era that we're talking about today, which is 800 to 1274, uh,
1: the great mm-hmm. uh,
0: king Saint Louis.
1: Yes, yes, Saint Louis, like um, like King David. I mean, uh, imagine this going to the Divine Office, not only hearing one but several masses. He's a king; he's probably busy, and then going to the Divine Office too, and urging his son that he should attend the Divine Office, and that he should really pray during Mass and, and, and reminding him that, um, and telling Philip that, especially after the consecration, that's when it's most efficacious, put your prayers in there. And then being concerned, because he knows that God will judge him on it, that there should be justice in the land. And so at regular, on a regular schedule, he would be sitting outside under the oak tree, and anybody could come up to him for justice, who had a complaint. What a, what, what a wonderful world that was. Was, and, and which is a church and state cooperated. But if you, you want to know what the cement was, what, what made all of that to work, what makes monarchy, I know you're a monarchist, so, so, and, and I think we've, uh, we've talked about this a little bit before, the only way a monarchy works is if the king's a saint. And if the king is not a saint, you've got problems. And uh, sometimes they're manageable problems, and you can look the other way and survive, as the church has done for centuries. And then sometimes they're really, really bad problems, and that's sort of the beginning of the end, or it actually is the end uh, for our for a given kingdom, or for an era of, 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 of Christian history. But St. Louis is, is the, the high point of the high point. Uh, Bishop Sanborn, in his writings, points that out. During the time of the reign of St. Louis, there were three kings, excuse me, three saints in Paris. One king, St. Louis, and then there were two saints, the, the two mendicants, St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure. Imagine, three great, great men, saints. They were all permeated with God. That's, that's what makes the difference, finally, is that these were men of God. They, and because they were saints, because they, in other words, They were achieving in themselves already the very purpose of the divine plan from the beginning, which is that we are meant to be happy with God one day forever in heaven. And this year we're doing in extraordinary heroic terms, living out their Catholic faith. So truly the 12th was the most glorious of all centuries because you had the saints. Kings have to be saints. If they're not saints, they won't be mediocre. They'll end up being monsters. You see that throughout history, and um, moral monsters, but then worse, too. And then God will punish everybody because of it. God's all the time published in Catholic countries, well, I mean Catholic monarchies, because the civil ruler didn't live up to their end of the bargain. They they despised the Church, they envied the power of the Church, and they tried to limit it in some sense, they took it unto themselves, and then they mismanaged it miserably. You have, like, um, the whole idea of um, the the kings appointed bishops, and then giving away abbeys and monasteries with all their lands as tokens of appreciation to their um, to their lackeys, to the courtiers they wanted to reward, and that's the whole that's whole system, almost from the beginning, the time of Charlemagne, you have to say it, all the way through to to, to modern times, to the end of what was left of the Roman Empire. So, um, uh, a, a king has to be a saint. Pope has to be a saint, but of the two, I'm thinking that it's more important for the king to be a saint than a pope. We have lots of examples in history of pretty good men who were are pretty good uh, people, might say administrations, uh, who by by popes who were perhaps in their personal lives far from sanctity. But but for you don't see that so much with kings. They 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 really need to be saints. I think Ferdinand of Castile is another example, um, Saint Ferdinand, and then, um, uh,
0: well, well in Casimir, more modern it, it, times it, it, we have yeah, um, part, we have Charles of
1: Austria, Charles of Austria, yes. For for in, in, as much whatever, obviously very very limited in his reign and very very limited in what he could do. But just just the witness that he was. He was the last of the Roman emperors, and he was a saint. Uh, personally, that, that already—that's beautiful. You might say a beautiful ending to to that whole uh, to that whole era. Uh, no, they've got to be saints. And then we haven't talked about uh, the intellectual life, the uh, this, uh the Saint Thomas Aquinas, and the re- the the. I want to say the revolution that he introduced into Catholic philosophy and theology. But it was a good revolution, it was okay, because it was of God, it was of the Holy Ghost. And as Leo XIII says, it was all to, to subordinate and submit all of man, all of man's intellectual powers to God and to the, um, and to the glory of God, and to, to promote this truly Catholic world and a truly Catholic um, worldview. That's what uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and his theology were able to do. It was revolutionary in the sense of it was a real departure from the the way of doing theology of the fathers of the church, and they say Bernard of Clairvaux was the last of the fathers, just before Thomas Aquinas. Um, now, now there's this new way in which Thomas Aquinas very boldly goes to the east and and digs up Aristotle and use, uses the thought, the classifications, the concepts of uh, of Aristotle as a way uh, as the most efficacious way to present Catholic truth. To the mind, and he's he's successful, but he, but people are shocked. The University of Paris condemns him. His works are burned, but it's of God. It's something which is holy, and so there. And it's done by a saint, uh, and it comes out. Leo XIII says it comes out of his own his own spiritual life. His own. There was something more than merely natural. It wasn't that he was just like a you know the super intellect, but uh, was able to go through all of these all of these writings. Of, of Aristotle and look at look at the other Greeks and then and then look at all the fathers of the church and then and put it all together. No, there was something more, something of God, truly inspired by God. Uh, but he, he was. If you, if you want to be a theologian, if you want to be a philosopher, or if you want to be a king, you got to be a saint. <laughs> I think that's it. That's the key to Christendom. That's how it works. To say for popes, not necessarily. Maybe there's so much religion and, and, and the works, anyways, and so much holiness there of uh, the office itself that they, they 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 seem to survive really fairly well. But but everyone is called to be a saint, and our culture is 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 one of is is meant to be the conveyance, the, the means, the vehicle, whereby we get to heaven. In every you know, in every sense, all of these things that we're talking about today, um, the, the, it, it should be a Christian culture. So probably our as we identify the root of the rock going right back to the very start as, as sort of a cultural question, um, then our, our challenge today is, in some sense, to recognize where we've gone wrong in our own thinking. Is it about marriage? Is it about philosophy or theology? Is it about politics? Uh, or wherever we've, we've been tainted by the, this, this revolution, this anti-culture. That we have today, that's, that has replaced Christendom, and then to remove that, and then probably to, to start to build again, as uh, the church has always built again on the remnants of any um, of any collapsed or uh, fallen culture. Yeah, it must have been pretty bad. It was pretty bad when when Rome fell, but the popes did their duty because there was no one else. So the bishop of Rome rolled up his sleeves and he went about work to to provide to take care of the city because it had to be done. And we're always, as Catholics, we're always doing what we have to be done, what has to be done. But in the context of, of really building an uh, all-inclusive, like a total, a total Catholic culture, I think that has to be our, our goal and our aim. If we understand the principles, and then we're on the same page, then we're doing, I think, pretty well with it.
0: Well, Your Excellency, you've uh, given me a great opportunity to, fl- to plug Father McKenna's show uh, on the Sumas. Okay. So mm-hmm. for people who want to go a little further with what His Excellency is talking about with St. Thomas, you can join us on the third Friday of the month. Our our next show is coming up on the 21st of February, and we'll explore those a little deeper. For those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to The Root of the Raw, episode one with His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. I'm Stephen Heiner, and we have been continuing to discuss the influence of culture upon man both for good or for bad good good or for ill and and the church's influence on that i i asked his excellency to talk about some quote-unquote fun things and and he indulged me and i i want to i want to bookend before moving forward because we you're right we haven't had a chance to talk about the flowering of saints during this time period which is also important but i i wanted to to just bookend your comments about the king needing to be a saint and again the expectation here and uh, wherever you are is, is that, uh, you know, there's a big scandal going on with the president of France here. Um, no one expects our leaders to be worth anything. We don't, yeah. we certainly don't expect them to be holy or to lead us to holiness. And it mm-hmm. reminds me of a, a quote about, uh, priests and their parishes. And they say, you know, if you have a saints for a, a pastor, then the, the parish will be good. If the priest is good. The parish will be fair, and if the priest is fair, then the people will be godless.
1: Right? Yeah, I think that's Pius X too, Stephen. If I'm not mistaken, that same Pius X. It, yeah,
0: it may it may be those you know those quotes just work your way into your brain sometime, and you don't you don't they remember do. where they're from. But this this hierarchy, you, you point it out and say, well, you have to start with the king. Well, that's because of society ordered as a whole, right? So if the king is leading right. by example, then the the families will do it. I'll, so often I I'll hear. Uh, people complain and say, well, you know, my son doesn't do this, or or my child really doesn't care about the faith. And as a single man, uh, it's never politic for me to say, well, how many masses outside of Sunday are you going to? Mm -hmm. Right? So this notion that if I'm okay, that means my kids will be okay. No, your kids should probably be one level below you. So if you're making a lot of if you're making a lot of sacrifices and you're doing and you're leading that life, it might inspire them to live one level below. It's not necessarily going to bring them to to your level. And I I think that's the the challenge of the the ruler is if we don't have as you say, maybe it's not as important to have a good pope. If we don't have a good pope, or in our case, we have no pope at all, or we have a, a bad ruler or bad president and we have, let's say, bad mayors, bad senators all around us, it's DIY, isn't it? So since you oh, have no, yeah. one to, no one to model it for you, you simply have to hold yourself to your own standard. And I have to say, Your Excellency, as humans, it's always easy to reach for that extra Madeleine.
1: <laughs> of course it is. Sure, sure, sure. But uh, one of some of the great values of medieval culture, we, we touched upon a little bit of Christendom, uh, with, was this idea of... Um, obedience and of respect, respect the king, respect respect your your liege lord, respect the pope, respect for the bishop, respect Almighty God, respect his name. Imagine the Pope having to intervene with uh, St. Louis, the King of France, tell him that branding blasphemers on the tongue was just a little bit too severe, and he really <laughs> probably shouldn't do that. Imagine the King doing something like that. Again, how glorious was that? This idea of utter respect for God and the sanctity of God, and he you know, leads a does all this negotiation, spends all this money, to get, uh, in effect, a secondary relic of the crown of thorns. Probably it's the the basket um, in which. Um with which our Lord was crowned. The thorns were thrown into or, or pushed into the basket, they say. And then the whole affair is, as a way of mockery, a false crown, an anti-crown was put on our Savior's head. And so he negotiates to get some of the the, the the fronds from the basket. And they are brought out. And imagine the king going barefoot for how many miles to meet this procession of the crown of thorns, this precious relic is a devotion to relics. Kings, Catholic kings always do. Um, and then building La Saint-Chapelle, one of, one of the, the absolute flowering of, of, of Gothic architecture, of truly Catholic architecture in Paris, to worth, so it may worthily house this relic of the crown of thorns of our Lord. But it's this idea of, of reverence and of respect and of obedience, all, and then loyalty all the way through. Well, that begins with the father of the family. If he doesn't make himself to be respected by his wife and by his children, if he doesn't raise his children with discipline, some sense of sacrifice and some sense of you know, silence, too, and, and of respect and of obedience, if those values are just gone, then it's, a, then it's the biggest mouth that wins. Well your battle, I don't care where you go to Mass on Sunday, your battle's over. And sooner or later, those kids are going to follow the modern way. They're going to get up and do drugs and get divorced and, and all of the rest, because the, the core values, the natural values, and the supernatural values were gone. They didn't see a king in their own family. So how can they visualize Christ the king? And then how can they be his, his, his loyal soldiers, as we tell the kids at Confirmation? Well, they couldn't be.
0: Well, you talked about all those saints, here, so I want to I want to just mention a few names before, Mm -hmm. before we continue on. So you mentioned St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Louis, or Saint Louis, as we would say here, Mm -hmm. St. Albert, the great, uh, St. Bonaventure, Mm -hmm. St. Dominic, Mm -hmm. St. Francis of Assisi, uh, you know, St. Peter Martyr, St. Anthony of Padua, St. Clair, um, you know Saint Hedwig. Uh, you know I don't want to. I know Luke will ask me to to mention Polish saints. Uh, saint Elizabeth of Hungary as well. And when we we think about that just uh, convocation of saints, these were actual saints. And I, I thought recently of the the death of Nelson Mandela, who is what the modern world considers a saint, right?
1: Yeah, the they anti anti saints or, or or Martin Luther King whose annual feast day is, is conducted in the United States with great ceremony every, uh, <clears throat> every January. Uh, yeah, these, these are, these are as, um, as, they, as they said to the Israelites of old, making Aaron and his pals making the calf of gold, these are your gods, O Israel. And what a, what a, what a punishment, what a degradation we have brought upon ourselves <clears throat> that men like these should be our gods. These are the people that people look up to. They, they worship, that they honor and venerate. But, you know, Stephen, having saints, uh, so the Church herself, obviously, is the column that supports uh, society, and what supports the Church in any age are her saints, the flowering of sanctity. So when you, this, this list of, of saints during the, the 12th century, in effect, more or less, tells you what a holy century it was, and that's how the church by her saints was able to balance all of the extremely wicked people who are also functioning with sort of a carefree abandon. So you have um Henry II and in, in uh, and you have, you have in, in, in England, you have uh, kings martyring Catholic uh, bishops, you have um uh in time of St. Anthony, for example, in, in in Italy, you have barbarians going around and uh awful tyrants persecutors there, there was always that in society one mustn't get the, get get the sense that if we're talking about the uh the the catholic the catholic centuries that it was sort of a paradise on earth believe me it never was but they made it through and they actually did fairly well because of the saints but otherwise it was a, it was a brutal and a, and a very very wicked and sinful age and each one of these saints could almost have died of heartbreak for what he had to face. Uh, but And all of the saints had these great things in common. So you had St. Hedwig, like St. Um, Louis of France, serving the poor, serving the poor on their knees, going to the divine office as well as to several masses a day. I was telling the people about Father Damien of Molokai this past Sunday, who is a, a wonderful modern example of, of, of Catholic virtue and his love for the lepers. Well, Saint Louis, the King of France, loved the lepers. He would embrace them. He would—he didn't care about contagion. He would serve them himself, and he would—he would provide for their needs. And really, until the. Um so the 19th century, during still during the reign of Pius IX, the uh, the, ninth, the, uh, the Catholic nobility, say of, of in this case would be a, of the Black Nobilities, so would, would be called later on of of Rome. They they would go on on Holy Thursday. There, there would be this; it would be left. This this is left over from the era of Saint Hedwig and Saint Louis. They would go on Holy Thursday, and they would minister to the sick, the poor sick in the hospitals. They would empty bedpans and do things like that. It was symbolic, like washing feet. But at some point in history, it wasn't symbolic. That's what they actually did. They did it every day. These monarchs would get up in the middle of the night and and do things like that. It was a it was a it was an entirely different world, a world in which God mattered and God came first. Their sense of time was so different from ours. They didn't have clocks. <laughs> they nothing and the the, the, the the day had its natural rhythm, and the rhythm of the day was determined by uh, and like the rhythm of the year, was determined by the church. That's what I remember, mean Catholic culture. It was determined by uh, the, the worship of God, the hours of the divine office, the seasons of feast and the fast, um, the, all, all the days off. Talk about having fun. All the days off and all the feasting days that, took, that, that, that were part of medieval uh, Christian life. And then at the same time, uh, the, the days and the seasons of fasting and even severe penance that, that were also part of, of Christendom and, uh, and of Christian life. But in all of these ways, the Church not only influenced her, her world, as we might hope today, it's like in the best-case scenario, that we could influence some of our families to, to lead that sort of a really Church-oriented, natural, and Christian life. More than that, the Church made the world. And, uh, and made made this whole this whole uh, this whole culture, and everyone went along with that, and that's probably how so many people were able to be saved, and that's probably how you got all of these wonderful saints in the in the um, twelfth and thirteenth century to, to start with.
0: You know, um, Father McKenna gave a sermon some time ago on, on Louis Pasteur, and I, I guess you know, Your Excellency, I'm listening to us talk today, and it sounds like we're being very gall Gaul centric, aren't
1: we? Um,
0: I, I assure you, it wasn't intentional, but I suppose it might be a bit, <laughs> a, a bit subconscious. Uh, maybe I had. Well, the, yeah. the
1: French will like it. Of course, they wouldn't oh. listen to this because this is in English, which is a barbaric tongue. But the French <laughs> will agree with at least at least the principle. <laughs> we we though so they so. may give you a nod after mass on Sunday, Stephen.
0: Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that when you when you imagine this scenario. Uh, I think of Louis Pasteur and Father McKenna's sermon was about the new God of science, right? Mm-hmm. The, so that's what we have today. Well, you know, everything can be explained by science, and this tie of the belief of Christendom to to science, and I'm thinking specifically, again, we're thinking about Louis IX, and we're mentioning French kings, so we can talk about the king's touch, the fact that mm-hmm. since the king the king was anointed, which again is a Christian custom— uh that mm-hmm. that, comes, that 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 has that has been passed down that the king because of his anointing from in, in a way from God had the ability to heal by his touch. A, a lot of Catholics yes. don't know this is part of our history. And and this was something that uh Hen- Henry the Fourth, who was a Bourbon, did uh you know, for all of the troubles of the Bourbon and that's a it's probably a show for another time, Your Excellency. But uh, one of the things to demonstrate that he was the legitimate heir after all of the the problems uh, of the of the wars of religion here in France, that he demonstrated the touch of the, the, the king to heal people of scrofula, and yes, right. the, this mystical touch that that we you know we we do have a we do have a god his god the, the, his name is not science and And there was a way for it to be demonstrated, and people could see it with their own eyes. They didn't need the internet to tell them it was true Yes,
1: that's right you know, that's was uh, and and even even that idea is uh, the idea of, of of leadership, if you will, but in this case the monarchy of the king, as something holy, as something saint like in this case a, a miraculous touch to heal a certain kind of a, of a disease. All of that is of. Christianity and in uh, is and is of this uh, this Catholic culture that that we've been talking about today. Speaking about King's father, Chikada made a reference to me. He was reading during the retreat uh, the life of Saint Francis de Sales, and after the retreat, he, he commented to me about um, about uh, Henry the Fourth and. Uh, uh, what a disaster court life was. I mean, uh, a moral sewer, a sewer. And usually, French court life was certainly a sewer. So so let's just get this word out to the French so they don't get too cocky in their ideas about the, <laughs> the grandeurs of France. And it, within the glories of Francis de Sales was that he, this, this, this consummate diplomat and gentleman and saint, because he was a saint, was able to maneuver and even to survive different plots the courtiers of the king had Produced against him at certain times. Other saints, like John Utes, for example, were much less um, able to do that, and because of that, maybe their their work actually suffered, and even suffered very much. Because this is the problem. It's. Um, I was thinking of George Washington. Of all things. Not to put Henry the Fourth and George Washington in the same paragraph, Stephen. I know that would be offensive <laughs> to some sensibility. Yeah, but, I was going to say
0: offensive to George Washington, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> So George no, I, Washington. I kid, I kid, I
1: kid. Yeah. yeah. Right. His um, you know, his his uh, closing advice uh, to avoid foreign entanglements. Really very very prudent advice and I wish that our our rulers would uh, but we're, we're far we're far from that today, that's for sure. But there there are always our foreign entanglements and I think one of the themes of this of this uh, first show in our series has been to point out that <clears throat> there are there are these necessary entanglement that cannot be avoided church and state for example uh the the human nature and the divine if you will sin and sanctity the one is going to touch the other and either sometimes you'll be be lifted up towards god other times you'll be you'll be dragged down so the church has to do business with these people um and uh that entails uh, sometimes the feeling of many compromises and sometimes there were outright sins and falls and terrible mistakes that were made <clears throat> because of these these entanglements, these compromises. But what makes the difference is that <clears throat> during the Christian era, everybody was on the same page theoretically. And I can't stress that enough. Everyone had the same faith. Everyone believed that he would die one day, and when he died, that he would face the judgment and everyone believed in the efficacy of prayer and the necessity of confession and of penance and of good works and of alms to the poor and uh, the worship of god and the building of churches and all and all of the rest and and care for the poor out of the love of god all all of this was everyone bought into that everyone accepted that uh the 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 problem was that um usually uh, you, you had a situation with the of Henry the Fourth, that is to say, or the French kings in general, that is to say that there was immorality and there was immorality obviously in rome and and some Some of the popes, especially now the ninth tenth century popes were 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 extremely immoral men, and sometimes the papacy was in the hands of a certain family or a certain party, and then used purely for for personal for pecuniary or political advantage would, all of that 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 went on. But those men knew that they were doing wrong, and they knew that when they died, they would face God. And they wanted to make—some make, uh, of them, of course, were entirely godless, but they, they, they wanted to, they wanted to um, make, make their peace with their maker, as they would say, and that's how— that's how you get these wonderful endowments. That's how the Church promoted for centuries the work of education and the care of the poor, out of uh, you might say the guilty consciences of of the rich, of the nobility, the aristocracy, the rulers. And they they left uh, they left endowments and money for masses, for the foundation of monasteries, for choirs to pray for them and pray for their their their, their wretched souls. So that that too was part of this. Um, everyone believed pretty much the same way. That's why heresy was unthinkable, and that's why eventually, during the High Middle Ages, the ultimate punishment was come up with, not by the Church, but by the state, of burning heresy, to, to show burning heretics, uh, to show our, our utter disdain for this truly uh, uh, poisonous uh, attack on the very heart of society. It was a poison arrow against society, heresy, heresy and heretics. So, um and and, and there would be there would there would have been a common by the Middle Ages there would have been a common consensus about those things. And that common consensus based on Catholicism, that's Christendom. And of course, as we're saying, that's what's gone now. But he who controls the culture controls everything else.
0: Well, I we could go on for quite some time, Your Excellency, but I know you've got a decision. No doubt. You... <laughs> before the weekend. And so the the last thing I want to touch on is we're heading into by the, by the, this time, when we do this show next month, which, uh, will be on the 28th, it'll be the the last day of, of the shortest month of the year will be on the eve of Lent. And something that I suppose is getting more play in the, in the godless culture, let's say of, uh, of the vegetarian culture, which has, as, as it's God, you know, not God, <laughs> but they have mm. brought back this idea of fasting. This, yes, yeah. the, the notions of food, how, how food was part of uh, your life. There's, you know, we, we keep talking, there's actually a Catholic way to do everything. Something we, we didn't have a chance to talk to about today was, you know, universities, hospitals invented by Catholics, not invented yeah. by, not invented by science. The, this idea of fasting, what was the sacrament of a meal like, you know, the idea of drive through windows, uh, how that's in its own way, not Catholic. How can we look at, let's say, food and fasting within this time period of Christendom and how it informs the way that we live our Catholic lives? You might just say, well, it's just a meal, your excellency. I mean, it's just food.
1: No, it wasn't just the take. It was so sort of like the taking on the fuel. Now, to be fair, we have to say somebody like um, the Curie of ours looked upon food exactly that way, and there was many a saint who did too, actually, in their excessive fasting. But then again, he was a family man. He was purely for the, the family of the parish. And in, in the context of society as a whole and, and, uh, and the family, food and the ritual of taking food become something almost sacramental. That is to say, some kind of an external that uh, imports, it, brings along with it, uh, internal graces. In this case, it's communication, it's civility, it's discussion, and it's order. An order to the day, which if you keep your day orderly and, and unite it with the prayer and food and regularity, in that sense, you keep everything else in order. And that's the goal of Christendom, Catholic culture is to keep everything in order, properly categorized, and then and then done in due measure, and in order. So, uh, so as I say, there was an order to the day, there was an order to the seasons, and there was an order to the year, and it was all based on on Catholic life, on. Uh, a sacramental viewpoint of these things. So there were the days and the seasons of fasting, and that was, that was and to start with, it was extremely severe. That's where the Mohammedans got the idea of a total fast from. Uh, that, that that was practiced by the church for, for centuries, and uh, even until the the 19th century, when there was some effort at a restoration after the revolution, there 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 were, there were certainly. Uh, sincere and severe attempts to to reestablish that. One of the interesting little ironic notes of history is that uh, in France there is practically speaking uh, no no tradition of fasting anymore. All of that went out as a result of the wars and the world wars of course are a great uh, machine used by the uh, naturalists to, dis- to destroy what was left of Christendom, Catholic culture, World War I in particular and it was successful. So so you had a country like the United States of America, America, where uh, the, the fasting rules were held in respect until the changes, and that's probably the only country in the world. It's one of our minor glories, but I thought I would mention that. Um, but the idea of putting it all into context, uh, that, that's part of Christendom. That's part of Catholic life and culture, how your day is ordered. The family eats together. Uh, they, during the meal, they, they pray beforehand. And then during the meal, they talk, they converse with each other. And what we would call, genteelly family values, those are reinforced. Uh, the respect for mother and father, not wasting food, uh, self-discipline, getting along with others, being pleasant, community life. All those values are taught to children at, at the family dinner table. And, and as and as those things disappear, everything disappears. And then the, idea of, as I say, the idea of fasting, whether it be the Eucharistic fast, for Holy communion, or whether it be the, the abstinence on Fridays, or, the, or the, different, um, the different rules that we have to remember in the course of the ember days, meat only once a day, not eating between meals, what a fast would mean, all of those things they, they form the way we think about life itself. And that's that's and that's the great bond that we Catholics today who are left have in common and it's it's precious, and we press we need to we need to try to develop that because those are the externals you might say in a sense like a sacramental that are very, very important because that's that's how human nature is built
0: I think that's an excellent place for us to leave it your Excellency uh, Do you have anything else you'd like to add before we let you go?
1: I think that uh, the, the, the oh, I, you know, I um, there's that magazine, Latin Mass magazine, which uh, at one point was actually quite interesting in a sense at the very beginning of the adult movement. Now much less so, but it has sometimes vaguely interesting, not always well written, but vaguely interesting articles about Catholic culture. And the one series they used to have, I don't know if they still run it, was called Greatest When Catholic, and they would talk about some incident or era or some figure, in in Catholic cultural history over the years. And I think that we could say, to sum it up, only true when Catholic, uh, when, when Catholic truth is held in common, and when we sincerely pledge ourselves to live out that Catholic truth, then, then you've got Christendom, then it's humming, then it's purring along like a contented cat. And that's what, that's, that's what you want. And that's always, it's always on a very minor scale. That's still a possibility for us. But remember that the the purpose of the Church is to get us to heaven to make saints, and that happens not by itself off in the corner someplace, that happens in the culture, in in the context of our lives. So we have to have a Catholic culture, Uh, and you need saints. You have to, at the very least today, we have to know and love and honor our saints, because uh, as we've seen today, you've got to be a saint, you have to at least have saints. So maybe for survival, at the very least, we need to know our saints better and love them and have a devotion to them and know about their lives so that we have some guidance for being saints ourselves and and raising our children with that sense of heroism so that they may be saints, just as St. Louis, the King of France, instructed his son, Philip.
0: I think that... I think that's a, a great note, Your Excellency. Thank you so much for joining us, and we we look forward to having you on our next program.
1: You are very welcome. it been my pleasure. God bless you, and God bless everybody. Thank you, bye. Thank you, Your
0: Excellency. Uh, for, for those who'd like to reach out and uh, have any who have any follow-up questions for His Excellency, you can email us. Always remember mail, M-A-I-L, at truerestoration.org. And if there's anything that you'd you'd like to ask His Excellency a bit more about, you can you can do so in that email. Keep in mind, 800 to 1274, it's a very <laughs> it's almost 500 years. Uh, this was only a 90 minute show. We certainly couldn't do uh, justice to that time period, but I think we accomplished our goal today, which was to talk about a lot of things that we take for granted today and the attitudes that we have and how they can reflect back on a time period where where there was such a thing as as Christendom, which we can't really say that we have anymore. We at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you find this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you would please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. If you have any questions or comments or would like to reproduce our work on your channel in some format, we'd love to hear from you. Simply leave us a message on our Twitter handle at True Restoration or via email at mail at truerestoration.org. For the Restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. I'm i